And welcome to Put That Coffee Down, the Freight Sales Show here at Freight Waves, where we talk about everything in sales when it comes to logistics, freight brokerage, carriers, freight tech, whatever it is in freight and logistics. We're talking about sales there because everyone has to sell to remain employed. Whether you're doing the selling or someone else is doing the selling, that's what you got to do. My name is Kevin Hill. Here, as always, with Richie Daigle. How are you doing today, Richie? Yeah, doing well. We're uh, we're flipped for a while. You were in the studio, and, and I was being recorded from home. And now, now you're uh, you're not in the studio, and I am in the studio. I know I'm not in the studio. I'm not quite at home, but I'm not in the studio. I'm here in Southern California. I'm here in Palm Springs for the week. I decided to come out here to a desert during Memorial Day week, which. I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea at this point. It's that heat has kind of hit me over the last two or three days. I mean, it's not really that hot, but just, uh, just didn't like, I don't know. It's just, it's just one of those weird things where I am just like, I'm dragging uh, today a little bit. I have to get my energy up. I have been playing golf the last two or three days and the, the, the heat has just gotten to me. It's a dry heat though, right? It's just a dry heat. It is a, it is dry heat, so it wasn't really that bad. I'm a little bit sunburned. I think that might be a, a little bit of it. I have uh, fair skin, so uh, sometimes that and age will, will catch up to you. But I'm not very far from your old stomping grounds. When you were a kid out here in the minor leagues playing for the Padres organization, you were where, where were you playing at? Yeah, I was just down the road from where you're at now in uh, Lake Elsinore, California. Uh, so we would we would play in a lot of the, the inland towns in California, like, you know, Rancho Cucamonga and Bakersfield and San Bernardino and Lancaster and San Jose, Visalia, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, uh, Lake Elsinore was a great time there and uh, lots of good memories from Southern California. Yeah, and all those towns are very familiar with our audience, right? Because of the inland empire. You have, you know, up toward the valley, you have all the produce uh, sections of the country. And then down here in the Inland Air Empire, you know, Ontario, Riverside, Bakers or Bakersfield sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you have a lot of warehousing. So you have a lot of warehousing, uh, a lot of the, those, the, those merchandise coming off the West Coast ports. Make it over here to Riverside and Ontario um, to, to get trucked out, railed out uh, across the country. And we've seen that a lot in the last year with this huge boom of consumer spending. And it seems like it just won't stop. Will it? Yeah, it's all all signs are pointing to that trend continuing. Right. Uh, you know, people are con- continuing to go out and spend money and uh, you know, orders are continuing to stay elevated and uh, that stuff has to move. And so we're continuing to see that pressure coming in from imports and, uh, you know, overall pressure on maintaining current uh you know rejection levels and volume levels and this is all at a very high level but all that to say yeah there, there's no end in sight as far as the data is concerned um and it's an, it's an exciting time it is an exciting time there's a lot of action going on that brings up a thing that we're going to be talking about with our guests later on in the show Alex Schuster uh from chariot logistics he's also a member of the, the national transfer or national national nashville transportation club so we're going to talk to him about double brokering because once activity gets really high and you're just searching for a truck and praying for a truck just trying to, to do anything sometimes you you get a little weak 
and you start uh, calling other brokers, double brokering starts happening a little bit. You have your your core of probably the legal stuff, and then you have uh, you have things that will just get you in trouble. Not necessarily illegal, uh, not even necessarily unethical. Although a lot of people, it, a lot of it is unethical. Uh, but but sometimes you're in a pinch and you start doing that, you get yourself in a lot of trouble. So we're going to talk about talk to Alex about that uh, today. But first, let's talk about potential. I, I know the consumer spending has hit its potential certainly, but let's talk about personal potentials. And you have an example. Coming up with a famous psychiat- psychiatrist, uh, an Austrian, who uh, who did who's done a number of research studies, but we're going to talk about one uh, about purpose. Yeah, you know there was a, an interesting article that came out from the Harvard Business Review last week uh, about employees reaching their potential, especially during the pandemic. And you know they you know you're seeing the the high level uh, synopsis here, but you know after surveying. 14,500 U.S. workers, this was the, the, the synopsis or what they found. And what you're seeing, you know, the last bullet point is the one that really jumps off the page to me. And that, um, you know, those workers that did feel like they were meeting their potential, they also saw that there was purpose and meaning in their work and they were committed to their organization. There was some sort of just cause there. Uh, There's some sort of fulfillment above and beyond just compensation. Um, and that that immediately triggered uh, you know a great book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, um, where you know he talks in depth about how meaning is one of these primary motivators, or maybe the primary motivator for for humans, uh, even more so than compensation. And, and that triggered another review from from Princeton that came out uh, you know a number of years ago where they. They talked about $75,000 a year being that kind of magic number where money does kind of lead to happiness up until when you make that $75,000. And then beyond that, there, you know, it gets pretty fuzzy. You know, money and happiness aren't really as correlated when you're making more than that. Um, so I think that uh, all of that to say, you know, just the way my mind's working is um, it's important that people have some understanding of why they're doing what they're doing. You know, beyond just a paycheck, you know, what what are you providing? What goods and services are you putting out into the world? What problems are you solving? What are you doing to make things a little bit better, the world a, a better place? You personally, but then as well as your organization and your organization's mission. And, uh, you know, workers that are plugged into that seem to be feeling like they are, are more productive or they're reaching their potential more so than workers who aren't plugged in uh, to that level. So, yeah, Kevin, those were... You know, just some of my thoughts reading through various articles over the long weekend. But um, yeah, curious to get your your insight as well. Yeah, you know, purpose. I, I mean, uh, a lot of people, especially when it comes to uh, when you check your personal life, it's it's your purpose is very personal, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's very personal. It's a lot of times about family and uh, and, and duties and. And uh, things that are non-monetary whatsoever. But when you take it to, to the work and what's the purpose of work and employment, some, somewhere you're going to spend 40, 50, 60 hours uh, a week of most of your life, everyone wants to assign the, the, the dollar tag to it. You know, the, the, the money sign, is it worth it? You know, getting into economics and, 
and uh, reward and, and risk, but it all kind of goes together. I mean, you can't really separate the two. It, it's really what fulfills you. And sometimes it's not money that, that does that. Maybe it's some altruistic reason. Maybe it's helping others. And and the most successful salespeople that I know, uh, their purpose is to help others, to, to create value, to, to, to build things. Uh, not necessarily for the, the, the monetary, you know, the strictly the monetary facts. I, I will say, uh, I've, I've done this a couple times, and I, I think by the time you get to, to 40 or, or certainly 50, you've probably done it a couple times, is that you've taken an opportunity just for the money, right? It's, it's like, I'm going to base this decision on money, and whether it's, it's staying somewhere maybe sometimes or leaving, going somewhere else. Uh, we, we were just like, I'm just a hired gun. I'm just going to go do it for the money. It, it really never works out. It really doesn't. If that's your reason, your sole reason is I'm going to do it just for the money. I'm going to get into sales just for the money. You're not going to get very far. You have to enjoy the process. We talked about it all the time, Rosie, right? You got to enjoy the grind. You got to enjoy the process. You got to be in the present. And that's all about purpose. If your purpose uh, doesn't conform to what you're doing on a daily grind, you're never going to make it to to where that money is is actually a payoff. hundred percent. And you know, I, I think the money you can kind of think about it like lighter fluid. You know, we're just coming off Memorial Day weekend. A lot of people were out there and, and grilling and it's great for getting the fire started and building up that big flame and that initial passion, but you need purpose for that slow burn that's going to take you throughout the entire career, the long term mm-hmm. uh, you know, fulfillment that you're going to get from that position. And uh you know, that's one way to, to think about it. And I think it does kind of work, you know, based on where you are in life, you know, what's your situation? There are a lot of situations where it does make sense for money to be that primary motivating factor. And that's what's going to be getting me going. Uh, and then you get on later on in your career. And now you start thinking about your legacy. You start thinking about what, what, how are you impacting the world at large? And, and your mindset starts changing a bit. Um, I saw a study, I read a study about presidents, you know, First four years, they're focused on getting reelected. And then second term presidents are more focused on their legacy. Um, I do think that it is possible, though, to mesh the two. You don't have to be either or. You can be motivated by both. You can be pursuing bigger gains uh, you know, monetarily along with building your legacy all at the same time. And I think those two can, can coincide. It's never too early oh, to, yeah. start, to start on your legacy. Oh yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not dissing money whatsoever. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. always great to have. It, it's always great to have. So I'm not dissing that at all. But I will say, money's great. It's how you keep score. Sometimes it's 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 nice. You can enjoy things. It's freedom as well. But at the end of the day, you can't. Uh, you you have to have day to day purpose because your your bank account's not going to change day to day. But your, your mood will, your emotions will. So you really have to enjoy what you're doing. The more you enjoy it, the more time you spend at it, the better you get at it, the more you're going to be compensated. But that takes years to, to build up. And a lot of times if you if you do something just for the money, uh, you, you're skipping over, mentally skipping over all the work that goes, that you have to put in to really justify the, that, that, that money. And if you're just doing something solely for the money, uh, you won't get to the the expertise or 
the, the situation, uh, the productivity, right, um, that, that you need to, to get that money, which is our, our next segment here. I think I, I switched our, our segments around uh, a little bit, but this is uh, about reaching potential, right? How employees mm-hmm. reach potential. And your organization has a lot to do that. Your, your personal mind frame has a lot to do that as, as well. But this is a Harvard Business Review article that you sent over to me. You were uh, your busy bee uh, the, the, this Memorial Day weekend reading reading different articles. So thank you so much, Richie. Um, but, but here's a little prelude of that. And, and we have this up here. Uh, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, American workers are struggling to reach their full potential. In a national survey we conducted of more than 14,500 workers across industries in 2017, approximately 85% of them were not working at 100% of the, their potential. In fact, only 15% of workers said they were. Moreover, 16% said they were using less than 50% of their uh, potential. So it raises a question, you know, how do you, as an organization, how do you lift your employees up, empower them to reach their potential, Richie? Yeah. And, and you know, the, just going down that list, having clear expectations, when, when employees know what they are charges, what their goals are, what their purpose is, what, what are they trying to do? Um, and having really clear, in-depth expectations there, then I know exactly what I need to do. I know what I, how I need to structure my day. I can take care of the rest to make sure that I'm set up for success. And then also uh, uh, feeling safe to ask questions, right? You know, it's you don't have to know all the answers, but you need to know where the answers live and you need to feel uh, like you are in an environment where you can go ask people to, to find the information that you need to solve problems. Um, and then, you know, not suppressing people with too many, you know, micromanag- you know, micromanaging people or setting up lots of mm-hmm. check-in meetings or uh, that's been a big, we've talked about that in previous episodes where the importance mm-hmm. of trusting your your employees and, and trusting people to go out and do it, do their jobs and not keeping them under the thumb with lots of unnecessary meetings and so forth. And then, you know, meaning, meaningful work, you know, uh, you know, and then before meaning, meaning and work, uh, supervisors, you know, supervisors who are in tune with what their employees are doing. If they, if the management team really understands what's going on or what the, uh, the frontline employees are going through, then they're going to better be able to position themselves to be supportive. Uh, and when you have a front line that feels like they're supported, feels like they can be creative with their problem solving, feels like they know where they can find all the answers that they're looking for, they have clear expectations and they find meaning in their work, then that's a front line that is well equipped to go out and, and, and maximize their potential in terms of productivity. You're exactly right. And in this Harvard Business Review, this article had a great example of that. And that's when COVID first hit looking at hospitals and nursing staffs. And when you really look and you remember back in, the, in those days, especially there was so much confusion. Uh, it was really an emergency. There's a, but, but there's a, a natural confusion of how to treat patients, you know, what's right and what's wrong. You're overworked, overtaxed. And then uh, I, I think one, one of the nurses applied for PTO because uh, he or she were, was it was just completely burned out, uh, but she didn't actually, uh, you know, put in her request correctly, and it was turned down. Uh, 
so you have really high stress situations and you have bureaucracy and, and red tape and, and unknowns, which which crush crushes down. And they also went into the article as well. Um, the, the fact that nurses became less sure of everyday decisions as well. Right. Just the normal type of decisions they used to make every single day, like clockwork, because of all the confusion and uh, abstractions was there was a notable difference in their decision making ability, even through their their normal, typical things that they used to make decisions on uh, quite frequently and confidently. They, They just completely lost their 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 confidence in making any decision whatsoever. Yep. Uh, 100%. And, and you, you saw that all that stress and that difficulty led to this environment where you lost trust, there was more uncertainty, and there was, that led to a lack of focus. And so now you can feel that stress and you don't have any sort of focus with what to do with that anxiety and that stress and how to act and how to take a step in any kind of meaningful direction to, to make things better. And that can just compound itself and create this dizzying effect where even, you know, like you said, very basic tasks can all of a sudden come under fire or or seem like you want to question those as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's the importance, especially in high stress situations. And I think we're seeing this in transportation right now with the elevated volumes, capacity as tight as it is. It's a stressful time for all parties in the transportation industry at the moment. And I think it's important to, you know, now more so than ever to, to keep those open lines of trust and those that open communication tra- uh, channels um, and start building ways to keep people focused so that you can start chipping away at the mountain that is the current situation and, and, uh, and, and you know, create an impact. Um, yeah, so. It good, is. Good stuff. It's. A- yeah, no, it's all about confidence, right? I mean, whether you're in sales or, or pitching, you know, athletics or, or really anything, anything you do, you have to have confidence in your decisions. You have to confidence in what you're doing is on the right track. And uh, if in, in organizations and teams that, that you lose that, that the empowerment or that, that confidence, you have to regain that back. And part of that is, is, Ownership, right? Having having people own their their processes, own their decisions, uh, making sure that they're, they're they're confident in that. So that's is, is a huge part of life, definitely. Uh, you're talking about sonar, and uh, or you're talking about the freight markets, and and well, let's jump over to sonar and see what your chart of the week here is for. Put that coffee down. Yeah, so I picked out a lane. Um, you know. We, 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 we hear all the time uh, at, in Sonar on the sales side, um, you know, we're, we're out there preaching the importance of real-time information and real-time data and why it's so vital, especially in today's, uh, you know, market conditions to have real-time visibility. And a lot, and a question that comes out oftentimes is that sounds great, but tell me, like, show me how that works. Like, how exactly am I going to make that tangible? What what is a way where real-time visibility is going to impact my bottom line directly? Uh, and when, in Lane Signal, which is an application within Sonar, for either refrigerated or drive-in lanes, we can pull up this analysis. You know, we can plug in any three-digit, three-digit zip code uh, as long as it's 250 miles or greater, and you can click on van or reefer. 
What I noticed here is for this specific lane from Los Angeles to uh, Chicago for refrigerated, if you'll look at the week over week percent change, it's up almost 20%. And you know, if, if you are operating in the spot market for refrigerated freight on this lane today, and you are using any other way or platform for, for understanding what rates are, understand that all the other platforms out there in the marketplace are going to be lagging by seven days, sometimes two weeks. And here we're showing you that the market on this lane is up nearly 20%. So if you're a broker, this is a big deal because your margin is at risk here. Uh, you know, If you are a, an owner operator, you want to understand what the value of your truck is on this specific lane. And if you're a shipper, you want to be able to you know, understand how to navigate the marketplace on this lane as well. So um, you know, really good information here. Of course, we can see that um, you know, from today, looking forward to next week in the forecast, we see market conditions are forecasted to loosen a bit. Uh, but they certainly have tightened uh, substantially from where they were a week ago uh, for refrigerated freight specifically on this lane. So, um, yeah, thought it was, this would be a good a good way to highlight the importance of, of real-time information. Yeah, definitely. In the forecasting models, I, if you're basing things off 7 to 14 days ago uh, through freight bills and things like that, then it, you have that lag and you can't, you, you can forecast out maybe next week, but you can't catch up to that forecast, right? So if that forecast changes today, if, if things happen today, that's going to cause that that forecast to, to, to move next week. If you're using real-time or near, near real-time information, then you can adjust it on the fly. But if you if you're using things that are seven fourteen days in, in, in the past, it's it's hard to adjust in in the short term. And we do know that I mean it's a very volatile market. It's been that way since since last summer, since about this time last summer. You know, heading out of Memorial Day, and it's likely to certainly become even more volatile as we get back to normality here. Um, I think here in California, June fifteenth, they're, they're lifting the. All the COVID restrictions, uh, probably one of the last places in, in the U.S. to do that. So it's going to be very important, you know, coming out of then, especially uh, what we see in the, in the freight markets and in consumer behavior, uh, especially. I mean, we, we talk a lot about on, on Freight Waves TV here, we, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, the, the stimulus spending. We, we talk about the, the mixed shifts of consumer spending between services and tangible goods, which is more trucked. And uh, we've been talking about inflation for, for a number of weeks now, you know, especially. So we have all those things coming in and we'll see what what behavior is, what the economy does and see if we see greater periods of volatility on the upside or maybe volatility on the downside as well, depending on 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 really on those three topics right there, you know, inflation, uh, mix in consumer spending and in stimulus payments. So. It's going to be it's going to be very interesting. We're going to see a lot of movement in the markets coming up uh, in the second half of the year, and real time data is the key. Yeah, you know we're seeing big week over week, uh, you know volatility on a lot of lanes right now, and and sometimes there's a rhyme and a reason. Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes it kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's pretty surprising. And you know that, like you said, that's the importance of having that real time visibility because. As, this, as the marketplace overall gets more and more volatile, there's more changes happening and what's going on with imports and everything else, 
these types of, of shifts are happening all the time. And the brokerages in the world that are able to stay out ahead of that volatility are, you know, stand to, you know, kind of reap the rewards of that by being on the right side and always being proactive. On the flip side, brokerages that are behind and reacting and getting stuck, you know, wasting a lot of time negotiating where they don't have leverage and losing on the, on the you know, their margin, uh, when conditions like what we're seeing on, on that LA to Chicago reefer lane happen, they're poised to, you know, suffer some losses or really have to work a lot harder to find that margin. So, um, you know, really interesting times to come over the next six months for sure. It is. And for the freight brokers that aren't using real-time data, using old market data, you're going to get into to positions where you can't find trucks at the rate that you quoted at the right price. And what does that do? It makes you a little bit desperate. And we have Alex Schnitzer here uh, from Chariot Logistics. And we're going to talk about desperate brokers right now and, and how to protect your customers uh, against these, these double brokering type of situations, which uh, I tell you what, it just gets everybody in trouble. There's, yeah, you're going to get burnt very quickly if you're if you're double brokering, if you're doing things that uh, that 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 causes you to lose control of your transactions because the, the less control you have over them, the, the 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 more bad things that will happen and they will that they do happen uh, the, almost invariably uh, that they certainly do. So, Alex, uh, welcome to the show. Hey guys, uh, appreciate you having me. How are y'all doing? We're doing great. Doing well, doing well. Good to see we you again, We are doing Alex. great. Good deal. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, before we get started, Richie and you guys, Richie and Alex, know each other from a different industry, right? You guys used to work together in a, in, in in restaurants. Is that right? Yes, sir. I mean, I'm sure you know, but you know, Richie has had like 17 different lives. You know, he's been a professional <laughs> baseball player. He's been a, a ex- Extraordinary server. I mean, man, does what? What can this guy not do? That's what I want to know. <laughs> very, very, very well pointed out. Definitely. So, so Alex, uh, please introduce yourself. Uh, tell us what what you do at Trade Logistics, and then also uh, talk about the Nashville Transportation Club as well. Uh, yes, sir. So I'm Vice President of Sales and Customer Service at Chariot Logistics um, here in Nashville, homegrown, organically grown, three um, PL freight brokerage. Um, about a little over nine years old, um, which in in uh, the freight brokerage industry seems like a hundred years. <laughs> but um, you know, we are uh, very um, proud to say that we're privately owned, and which allows us to keep our fiduciary responsibilities um, first and foremost to the customer, especially in a uh, very volatile market uh, that we have now. And I'm also on the board of directors with the National Transportation Club. Um, here in Nashville, which uh, is in its second full year. And our first year was incredible, a full head of steam. And then the uh, lovely pandemic comes into play and completely just derails a little bit of, of our networking events and that kind of stuff. But uh, just having to get a little creative um, with how we can get that name out there, which is seems to be the name of the game with surviving the pandemic in general, just being creative. It, it is definitely that is the name of the game. And you guys have a, a golf, uh, a golf day coming up in, in Nashville and, and the, yes, the next week, right? Uh, yeah. Yes, and right sir. there it is up on our screen. Uh, can you, do, you know, give us a little, little bit of details uh, of this activity in this day coming up on June 7th, a week from yes, today, sir. right? Next Monday. 
Yes, sir. Um, a week from yesterday, technically, you know, we're all still living Monday oh, yeah. with the holiday, uh, throwing us, throwing us through a loop. But, um, it's our inaugural graphs, golf scramble. We were going to have one last year, but again, the pandemic kind of screwed that up. But, uh, it's our first one. We currently have about seven or eight spots left. Um, so we're very, very pleased, um, with that aspect. Um, the interest has been incredible. We have a uh, handful of sponsorships available as well. Um, we are have a LinkedIn page that has our link for signups and sponsorship info. If, if anybody's interested, you see the, the golf TC of Nash email down there as well. Um, it is a, uh, you know, we're a nonprofit organization. It's a charity tournament um, going towards our scholarship fund. Um, that's one of our, our big parts of, of the National Transportation Club is we want to network, empower, and educate. And uh, we are going to support um, scholarship funds for um, individuals wanting to um, get into this crazy industry. First, we're going to advise them to probably pick something else. But uh, if they're crazy like us, then uh, try to help them with their schooling. Um, one aspect for the you know the scholarship type stuff and keep it regional and you know around the middle Tennessee area there's a lot of um collegiate programs that have very good logistics and supply chain programs and want to be able to uh support um local people for that uh endeavor so yeah uh Kevin I will say Alex sent me a, an invitation and I, I passed it on to one of my colleagues I, I won't be able to make it but that's probably a good thing because my golf game is kind of like an easter egg hunt I don't know exactly what direction the ball is going to go <laughs> I just know that it's going to go somewhere and that if there are houses nearby they're in danger um, but <laughs> so we will have some some representatives there and, and I know that our team's excited but uh, let, let's jump into it, Alex. Let's let's talk about double brokering. And I'd love to hear your definition of that term. I know there's a, a lot of definitions floating around, like a lot of things. Uh, but it's always good to define the term first before we jump in and really start digging into it. So w- what is double brokering to you? And um, yeah, and, and is it good? Is it bad? Uh, let's, let's kick it off there. Well, it, it, that, you bring up a great point. Because so many people just get caught up on double brokering being the scam aspect, the unknown. Uh, the true definition to make it as simplistic as possible is when a carrier accepts a load under one MC and runs it under a different MC, the load is double brokered. The why doesn't matter um, because there's several different issues that can come up. Obviously, um, you know, one of the biggest that gets the most attention and the messiest is with a scam, you know, you have a, a carrier that runs a load and ends up not being able to get paid because the person they got the load um, from disappears. Um, but again, a lot of people think that that's your example of double brokering and everything else is okay, especially if, you know, the carrier knows, well, it comes down to liability. And if you don't have the necessary safety ratings and paperwork um, for a a specific carrier or MC because it's run under a different one and something happens, the liability is going to come back on the, on the broker and they're not going to have a case because they didn't do the due diligence or the perception is going to be there that there wasn't due diligence done. So, so Alex, does that definition include, you know, if I'm, if I'm a freight broker and I go to a, another freight broker and I know they're, they're a freight broker, right? And right. they just broker the load as normal. Right. Is 
that that's double brokering as well, because that's my definition of double brokering does include that, even though it's cool. run on, you know, the, the, the other broker's MC number, they're, they're cool. getting the carrier. I don't know who the carrier is. So, I mean, there's a lot of problems with that in itself, right? Because you're not actually betting the carrier. Someone sure, else is betting the carrier and you're trusting that that happens, but you're just piling more risk onto yourself. A hundred percent. And I think you see that, you know, that example is, is more prevalent than ever now. Um, but to answer the question, first and foremost, yes, that is double brokering. Now, there's ways to legalize that agreement or to limit the risk. You know, there's broker to, uh, broker contracts that can get mm-hmm. signed. And again, it's just passing the liability down. But, you know, I want to know every single one of my customers, every single load, we want to know exactly where that load is at all times. I mean, that, that's what we sell. That's why we pay these fancy tracking services, all this, um, you know, all these fees mm-hmm. and stuff so we can find out where the load is. But if we don't know who is carrying the load, we can't set up all that kind of stuff. And we can't, um, you know, any broker can't provide the service that they, their specific customers are expecting. And um, again, there's lots of ways that it happens. There's, there's ways to mitigate it. There's ways to um, make it less complicated or, you know, have your cake and eat it too. But it's just, it's a slippery slope for, for me. And, and if you're doing it a little bit, you're leaving yourself um, liable and in jeopardy of doing it, everything. And this was really highlighted by one of our writers, Clarissa Haas, did an expose. It's a freight fraud, uh, purchasing double brokering scheme like a game of whack-a-mole. And that's the first part of the story. The second part of the story, which is very interesting as well, uh, it's not quite completed. It'll be out uh, early next week, like uh, I, I think the, the day of your, your golf tournament, June 7th. Wow. And it, and and th- it, that dives more into the uh, the real illegal aspects uh, of double brokering. It's about, you know, 10 different MC numbers in one address with associated with uh, two or three people with the same last name. And all they're doing is opening up new MC numbers and USDOT numbers to create just an exponential amount of shell companies where they can hide what they're doing and it makes it very difficult to to track down whether it be a safety violation or, or you know a load that doesn't show up. Someone doesn't get paid, especially the carrier, uh, because that original broker is uh, still kind of on the hook for paying that that carrier. Oh, not kind uh, of. Even if they the don't even get booked, yeah, they they are on the hook, right? And it's it just it, it's it just really makes it very difficult to, to try and maybe. Uh, load held hostage you know a lot of bad things can happen especially whenever you you don't have control you don't have visibility into the, the actual carrier who's hauling those, those those goods absolutely absolutely it's uh again it just can get so messy and and cause you know the financial aspects obviously get get all the publicity if you will against double brokering but it's just even if you catch it right before it's happening and, um, and all that kind of stuff, it still just takes so much time. Um, and there's so many things that it causes and um, negative effects from having a load double brokered on top of the monetary issues. So I think this is a, a, an opportunity where, you know, 
that both of you have more experience in the logistics industry than myself. And so I, I, I'm just going to take the, the backseat as the newcomer and just ask some basic questions here. Because what I'm hearing is that double brokering is like adding unnecessary people to the game of telephone. It's just going to muddy the messaging and it can create all kinds of confusion and problems for, you know, expectations and tracking loads and service standards and so forth. So I see all these downsides and I can see the the reasons why people might want to do it if they're wanting to be nefarious or if they're wanting to launder money. But and, and that's that's fair. But I'm really interested with brokers that have good intentions that are wanting to do the right thing that choose to go down this path of double brokering. Why? Why take on all of this risk? What, Alex, what, what's your experience on why people might be making that decision uh, right from the beginning to go down that road? So I think I'm going to originally break that question up into two parts. One, the brokers finding it necessary and then carriers. Um, one, you know, brokers finding that necessity is, you know, from a sales standpoint, it's, you know, it's more freight, right? You, you come into a situation, even when you're not in a volatile market, it's not a specific load of where a lot of companies maybe are single sourced from a, um, one of the bigger 3PLs or 4PL. Um, and the only way to service that customer is, is through, um, that said 4PL or 3PL. So, Again, it's in that dynamic that is technically double brokering, but there is layers and layers of contracts um, that you have to go through and, and on both sides to, to protect everybody involved. And it simulates, you know, a normal broker to carrier relationship because you're dealing with the, the bigger 3PL or the 4PL. Um, then that is, you know, your, your normal, like no extra urgency stuff like that coming in. And then I think the other is just that the urgency, you know, if somebody has a fear of potentially losing, losing an account or having a, a major issue on a load, they're uh, going to do whatever they can um, to get that load covered and maybe make some bad decisions or don't know that that uh, it's getting double brokered, but maybe potentially don't ask the right questions or just kind of, you know, have a shorter script to get the load covered. Um, and then the, where people think it's okay on the carrier side all the time is when you have a, a smaller to medium sized trucking company, we run this every single day where they're giving it to a friend who, you know, is a four or five um, unit trucking company or something like that. And for whatever reason, they're not set up in our system or, or, you know, don't have all their paperwork intact, maybe, or it's just easier, right? Manpower is, is the thing we get. Like, hey, just take this load for me, give it to me, and, and we're good. I'll run it. Well, a lot of times you're running too. The reason why they're doing that is because they tried to get the load directly from us, but they didn't pass our, our qualifications. Um, or they had that same thing happen at other brokers, right? Uh, whether it was their initial safety rating or their safety numbers or lack of inspections or whatever. Um, so it's forcing them to go through somebody else. Um, but again, you won't believe the amount of trucking companies that we talk to on a daily basis that think that scenario is perfectly fine and legal because everybody's in the know. There's no scam. There's 100% transparency on the carrier side. Now, <laughs> that transparency is not there from carrier to broker all the time um, unless you're asking the correct calculated questions. Um, as our staff is, is trained up and, and does on a daily basis, but 
that's that's why you have to ask questions, especially in a market like this where there's so much freight, so hard to to book each and every load. You have to slow down and follow your processes um, and your mitigation steps uh, for double brokering, or it's gonna happen um, because it is such a broad definition. And there are ways that, and they're not really that complicated to, there's entities out there. There's, it's easy to create entities that, that really make what you're doing very opaque. And a couple, you know, you mentioned four PLs and three PLs, right? And they're, they're pretty stringent about separating those two entities in-house, right? right? There's kind of that, that wall of separation. Uh, between them, and that is what they've promised their the, the shippers and and certainly uh, you know other you know transportation providers that, that work with them. Uh, but you also have you, know, you have dispatch services. You have uh, you, you have people that you call and and they, they try to give you three MC numbers. You know whichever one works the best, and you have to exactly. to, to worry about you know uh, you know here we go again uh, type of things, and then you just have your normal course of business. I, I think one of the, the worst ones I've, it was, it happened before I got to this brokerage, but there, there was a used jet engine, like a G jet engine that was going from somewhere in the U S to, to Mexico. And what you have is there's like six people in this, this transaction, starting with freight forwarders, which or three PLs as well. Uh, but they're doing the, the international side where there, there's two or three entities doing that domestic side. Well, the engine got to wherever it was in Mexico, didn't work, million-dollar lawsuits flying around. And that's when everyone kind of realized that they're in this chain of events that they didn't really even know about, that it was it was so – I think there was like six six brokerages in, involved or, or something like that, and uh, everyone just got sued. So you have these, these confusing situations uh, about uh, when, when you get into – these double brokering scenarios. A hundred percent. And again, it's, it's uh, one of the more unfortunate things, and I'm sure anybody else listening to this has been in this scenario would agree. Is every single time that we have a double broker or have had one in the past, it's when you step back and, and go through the list of everything that happens, you look at something and you're like, man, if this question was asked or if, this was extra verified or if we made this extra phone call, you know, the shoulda, woulda, couldas. And, and it's just, that's one thing that makes it so hard is, is like you said, they put so many, um, every time you add an extra layer from a dispatching service or an extra broker or 4PL, there's just another layer of communication. Like Rich alluded to earlier, the game of telephone, it just gets muddier and, and it's a complete mess. And, one of the biggest ways that we have found to no questions asked, just make sure the truck is who they say they are and all that kind of stuff is asking point blank, the driver, the name of his, what is the name of the company on the side of his truck? And then verifying with the insurance company, the exact COI. Don't get me wrong. We have probably 30 other questions that have to get asked. But there's no way to to fake either of those two, and to get off, you know, to still double our broker load. And and nine times out of ten, when there's a question, um, and one of those two questions get asked, and we don't get the answer we want, that that load is going to get double brokered if 
we didn't find out, you know, who's the truck driving or who's the driver's driving for and and is this insurance comp uh, insurance copy, excuse me, legitimate? Is it is it a real certificate or is it just something that somebody hacked up on the computer? So I got I got two questions for you, Alex. And the, the first question is, how do you handle these expectations in this conversation with your shippers? I mean, that, obviously, they want to avoid these situations and they I'm sure they're aware that this sort of thing happens. Um, so the first question is, you know, how do you how do you set expectations and build trust with your shippers? And then the second question is, what do you do in the situations where capacity is tight and the only option you can find to cover a load is going to be a high probability of, of double brokering. Like, what are you doing in those scenarios? Are you going down that road because you can't find another option? Or are you taking taking other uh, avenues to, to try to provide service? So two very good questions, um, very tough questions as well. But the first one, you know, we don't run from it. Uh, as far as, you know, whether it's a new customer, we're getting to, that's in our sales pitch. You know, that's, that's one of our offerings um, is our carrier vetting process, not just for double brokerings, but for safety and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's something that we, you know, again, I'm not going to sit here and say that's the number one thing we talk about and, you know, all that stuff, but we don't run from it. Um, it's a conversation that we take head on because it, it happens. Um, and, you know, as a, as a broker, it's talked about all the time, right? We don't own assets. We own communication and, and processes. And that's a huge opportunity for a salesperson to sell, to sell their expertise. Um, as a broker uh, on that one granular topic, hey, these are the how many ever steps, um, you know, we show our, our questionnaires that our carriers have to ask and, and the things that we're looking for um, to, to spot it um, in, in the sales process to our shippers and, and, and our potential customers uh, of how we are going to care for their freight and, and not let it fall victim. Um, and then, unfortunately, it still happens. Um, sometimes. So we have very strict processes to, again, don't hide from, from it. When it, As soon as it happens, we make our customers um, aware. One of the big problems with it is a lot of times you don't find out about it till months down the road. So you've already paid the original carrier and the um, or the original broker that accepted the load who you thought was a carrier and then double brokered it out. And that carrier comes calling for their money because they haven't been paid. And the person they took the load from has not uh, answered a call since they took the load type thing. Um, did that answer the, the first question pretty much? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. And on, on a quick follow up uh, before we get to the second question is, it, you know, shippers are, are aren't shippers responsible for for payment uh, of their goods, so if you get into that double brokering type of scenario, and and the carrier is not paid, I mean, ultimately it's the, the shipper. So that's always an awkward conversation to have with your shipper. Is that so, um, the, the, the carrier is reaching out to them? They might not be ultimately responsible. I think they are though, uh, but they're certainly going to get contacted by them, and that's, uh, oh, that's certainly 100%. not going to be good for your reputation. And that's one thing that a lot of these. Um, collection agencies um, and, and collection law firm types mm -hmm. have figured out big time that if they've got a carrier in a um, double brokering issue, the first thing they need to do is go 
to the highest contact they can find of that customer and start a, uh, a mess of email chains. And mm-hmm. that's going to get that specific code will get paid that day or the next for sure. Um, because then the customer's calling me saying, Hey, what's going on? What is this? And, and all that kind of stuff. So it, to answer your, your original question, Kevin, it really depends on the contracts that, that you have signed with, with the customer, what's in there, uh, you know, what does their language say, um, who's ultimately liable. Um, as a broker, I know a lot of contracts, that, that liability comes straight to us the second we, we sign the contracts. Um, you know, ultimately, if everybody disappears, um, goes out of business or whatever, then the customer is ultimately liable. But um, as a uh, service that we provide and a need for customers, that's one um, liability thing that just gets passed down to the brokers like a lot of other stuff. And that's why it's so important to protect yourself um, against the stuff, which is probably a good parlay into your second question. Um, Richie, we will never, um, never, ever enter into knowingly enter a double broker situation. Doesn't matter how hot the load is, um, losing customer type. It, that's just something that we're not going to do because of the liability. And, and we're also not going to use that as an excuse, right? We're not going to say, Hey, I missed your load because my only option was a double broker carrier. Like that's, kind of not fair, right? That's taking advantage of the system. Um, and for us, and I'm sure a lot of people are like this, if the load's that close to being in jeopardy, our, our customer was going to know uh, well before your 30-minute cutoff, before they close and, and uh, double broker and carriers and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's being transparent about where the load is and, and where we are with capacity and that kind of stuff. But to point blank answer your question, if the only option we have is a a double broker situation or something we know, hey, this is this isn't adding up for sure, then we're not going to enter that. Now, if it's more the situation where everybody's in the know, if there's a specific reason why the carrier running the load cannot get approved through our um, current qualifications, we figure out a why. Is it possible? Do they need to go do something, get leased under this other insurance um, to make that possible? Is there something we can do in, in a time, timely manner to make an unqualified carrier a qualified carrier? That's what we would look to do. Um, but again, if, if there's no way to give them the necessary qualifications to let them run it directly for us, then it's just something that we cannot afford to do um, because, I mean, even if it is losing a customer, the God forbid something happens um, with that load, they get in a wreck, then, oh my gosh, the, the liability is all straight on you. There's no contracts. Your insurance company has got 15 kinds of fine print to where you've neglected and yada, yada. So you're talking about, a, you know, most people think about the financial, negative financial aspects from a double brokering just being the, the freight cost. Well, that's if everything goes good with the load and it was delivered. The load wasn't <laughs> delivered. You have, you know, what the freight costs. Um, if there was an accident, you got those costs. I mean, it can just go from, you know, a few thousand dollars to seven figures overnight. And this is really a complicated uh, oh, Go ahead, Rishi. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to comment and just kind of summarize. Like what I'm hearing is like you do it right or you just don't do it at all. And And if you can find a way to get it done right, then sweet, let's do it. And if you can't, then 
we're not we're not making exceptions. And um, and then the other thing I'm hearing you say, Alex, is communications key and managing expectations across the board, both on the shipper side as well as the carrier side, and making sure that you are, to your point, you know, handling and owning those communications throughout, so that everybody understands what's happening. Um, that, th those were my takeaways there. I think it's good stuff, Kevin. I'm sure you got some more to add. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is just a, it's a complex issue because we haven't even gotten into uh, some of the other finer points, you know, trip leasing, right? And if you talk about trip leasing, that's a, that's a very complex kind of other double brokering situation that is, I, I it's, it's legal, right? I mean, you, you have maybe an owner operator joining a carrier for one trip and it's called a trip lease. And it's a little bit different from brokering, but it, it's it's the same outcome as that and it's kind of those situations where alex had mentioned where you know he gives a, a carrier gives it to a, a buddy you know someone else because they can't well they can set up a, an actual transaction for that that the broker and shipper doesn't even know about um but it's not strictly illegal and it's there's a lot of fine points in none of us are lawyers. So, uh, you know, take it, take everything with a grain of salt. We're not giving legal advice here. Um, but but just know that the murkier the, the situation, the, the, the more uh, variables and more parties that are involved in, in any load, uh, your risks go up exponentially. And, you know, I've seen it. I've done it. I, I did a double brokering well, once early, very early in my career. It was I, I couldn't find a truck. It was up in Fort McMurray. Um, the, the, the first guy had an automatic transmission and couldn't climb the hill. I, I never thought that would even be an issue, but it did turn out to be that way. And I, I double brokered it. Um, someone said they're going to have to deadhead someone a hundred miles. I went to my customer, got more money out of them, uh, for that deadhead. And guess who showed up the next morning? The, the same driver that, uh, no that, that couldn't do the load. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so that's that's one of those things that can happen. Uh, but, but we're running out of time here. So there's, there's. I'm sure everybody has uh, some great war stories. So uh, I'll post this out on LinkedIn, and 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 basically just uh, you can comment there with your your favorite story of how you got caught in some kind of double brokering uh, kind of situation. Because if you're young to the industry, you there's a lot of places that uh, you can actually get yourself into a lot of trouble. Uh, with that, because they don't have the, um, the, the the processes and procedures like Alex does. Uh, but thanks so much, Alex, for coming on the show. Uh, how does uh, how does our audience reach out and and contact you directly? So I have a uh, you know LinkedIn profile, just Alex Schitzer will pop right up. Um, and then for the National Transportation Club, the uh, golf at tcofnash.com is our email address. You can hit me up on on LinkedIn, uh, send a direct message or any of that kind of stuff. Awesome. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks awesome. again. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Good to see you, Alex. You bet. So, so Rishi, you're very lucky you don't know much about double brokering because it's a, a it's a lesson of hard knocks sometimes. Yeah. You, know, and, you, and you can either go through it yourself or you can watch other people around you go through it. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's dangerous. Uh, you know, the first thing as, as the conversation was unfolding, the first thing that came to mind was a game of telephone, right? And, and how... Oh, yeah. You know, if you just throw an additional five people into the, the, the line, then your the message that the person at the end of the line is going to get is going to be a lot different. Um, and you're just muddying the waters. And 
you know, you, you think about environments, right? Not, not necessarily trying to control outcomes, but if you can manage your environments, typically your outcomes will take care of themselves. And, you know, it's kind of, you're creating a poor environment or an environment where the, the probabilities of problems arising are higher than they need to be. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, you know, speaking to the situations where you have people with the best of intentions who are just trying to problem solve and looking for a quick way out. Of course, it's a different conversation for those that do this on purpose for nefarious reasons. But um, yeah, it just it just seems like it's uh, it might seem like an easy way out or an easy button, but uh, like like is the case with most easy buttons, they actually make things a lot muddier and, and, and can make it a lot worse. It, it can, and and this is one of the rackets that is played in the freight markets. Uh, you know, on load boards, and it does get really murky, especially you know eight nine years ago when visibility was everyone making phone calls, trying to track down trucks. Uh, it, it was very difficult, but there's a lot of rackets. There's, there's, uh, you know, catch, you know, fuel advances, fuel advances have gotten people, you know, there, there are people who still MCs and, and just complete fraud of, uh, you know, uh, of acting like an employee of that company, uh, giving out MC numbers, getting some kind of advance or maybe hiring uh, the, the trucking company without paying them. Um, to, to deliver loads. I mean, it's, it, it, it runs a complete gamut of, of different frauds and cons that are out there. So it's very important to, uh, to, to, to make sure that, that you're, you're dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, making sure that your processes and procedures are up to date and that everybody in your organization is following them. Definitely. Um, so next week we have our next virtual conference is the owner small fleets and owner operators summit. Uh, we'll be talking about owner operators issues and we'll be talking about you know developing those relationships with with freight brokers, with shippers, with AB five coming out of California and what those impacts are about financing your operations, factoring about you know owning your own equipment, leasing it. So it's going to be a, a, a great discussion. It's uh, next Wednesday, June 9th. Starts at 9 a.m. and it goes to, to roughly 4 or 5 p.m. We have some great sessions in there with the truck as well. Be talking uh, about the business of, of owner operators. And then actually, uh, it's Tuesday. I keep on thinking it's Monday, but it is Tuesday. So we have great quarter guys coming up at 3 p.m. with, with Andrew Cox. That these holidays just really get to me sometimes, right, Richie? Um, but yeah, so we, we have Andrew Cox coming up uh, at 3 p.m. on Great Quarter Guys. And then don't miss out on our daily morning show, Freight Waves Now. It comes on starting at 9 a.m. every single weekday. So you can catch us uh, tomorrow at 9 a.m. And with that, we are out of Put That Coffee Down. I got friends only wanna talk business. I got expensive, cause winning's expensive. I got expensive, cause winning's expensive. I've been getting out of work. And I've been shutting down the stars.